Hi, I'm Mike Duran. Welcome back to Counterbalance. Today, Marshall Kozlov is on assignment in an undisclosed location, and I'm flying solo. Uh, with me today is Jonathan Schachter. He is my colleague here at Hudson. He's a senior fellow at Hudson, and he's my partner in creating the Center for Peace and Security in the Middle East. Jonathan was for years the foreign policy advisor of Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Benjamin Netanyahu in, in Israel. I've been meaning to have Jonathan on for some time now. He joined us in uh, in January. And when news broke that the Israeli government was uh, going to go to elections, I thought now's the time to have Jonathan on. Jonathan, welcome. Thank you, Mike. It's great to be here. Jonathan, let's let's. Uh, my my intention for this podcast is that we'll cover the whole gamut. We'll talk about Israel. We'll talk about the Middle East. But let's uh, let's start with the with the politics in Israel. Why don't you tell us uh, uh, from your perspective uh, what what's going to happen in Israel in the next six months? <laughs> Chaos. Uh, I think uh, I think that's the uh, the sixty four thousand dollar question. Um, but before we get to the next six months, I think we need to focus on what's going to happen over the next six days, uh, plus or minus. There, uh, uh, there was this move. Prime Minister Bennett and uh, Foreign Minister Lapid announced this week that they were going to move to dissolve the Knesset. Um, and I think a lot of the uh, reporting has 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 taken that as as the starting point, which would mean going to a new round of elections. But before you go there, uh, I think it's still possible for somebody else, most likely uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, to try and form an alternative coalition using the existing Knesset. And until the Knesset is actually dissolved, there's an opportunity to do that. So I expect that right now there are uh, all sorts of efforts to peel members of Knesset away from the government, the coalition that's been in power for the last year, to try and form this alternative without going to elections. Having said that, the first reading of the bill to dissolve the Knesset uh, passed today. Uh, it needs two more readings, um, which I think are expected next week sometime. Today, just for the listeners, uh, we're, we're recording this on Wednesday the 22nd. Yes, sorry. And, uh, and then we'll see. Then if we go to elections, what that'll mean is a, a, an election in Israel has to be at least three months. Three months from now puts you right at the edge of uh, the Jewish holidays in September. So it would be after that. So the assessments uh, have been that the soonest you would have elections are uh, late October or early November. And then you get into the, the task of forming a government, if that's possible, which always adds another four to six weeks. So realistically, if a government would be formed after the next round of elections, the soonest that would be is December. So you said six months, and that's that's actually about how long at a minimum it would take to form a new government if they go to elections. 
So and 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 if it goes to according to the plan of uh, Bennett and Lapid, Lapid will be the prime minister for the next six months. Lapid, according to the coalition agreement uh, that they signed a year ago, would be the interim prime minister uh, between now and the formation of a new government. Now, if, as the polls suggest, there won't be a new government at the end of elections, that means he would be the interim prime minister successfully until a new government is formed. Um, as as you know, that, that you know over the last uh, three years there were four rounds of elections, and it was only after the fourth that a, a government was was cobbled together. This is a very interesting way to run a country. <laughs> it's an interesting way to not run a country because the, the interim government uh, has very limited power. The, it's it's limited in, in its ability. You know, you're dissolving the Knesset, so there's a limited ability. You know, uh, you basically can't pass laws. You can't pass a budget. You can't make major uh, appointments, which is in the headlines right now because the IDF chief of staff's term is supposed to come to an end uh, early next year. Um, and the defense minister was trying to to make that appointment before the government collapsed. It looks like that that won't happen. So that's already been. Uh, the subject of an inquiry to the uh, to the attorney general. So Lapid will find himself for the first time in the prime minister's office, but with this asterisk of being the interim prime minister with very limited ab- ability to, to get things done. So he'll have all the levers in his hands, but the levers won't be connected to anything. <laughs> it's, it's, one, it's a good way of looking at it. Well, the alternative scenario, oh, and then of course you said, and the polls are suggesting that it might, it it might not be, the election might not be conclusive. By which you mean that they might not be able to put together a coalition, just like they they basically have had such problems up until now. That's what the initial polls suggest, but uh, it's very early. I mean, the Knesset hasn't even been dissolved yet, and so that, you know you could argue that the 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 unofficial campaigning has begun. The official campaigning uh, has not. Um, you know, it's funny in, uh, according to, uh, the law in Israel, when they do polling before an election, they have the last poll they're allowed to do and publish, I think is the Thursday, uh, of the week before the election. And, um, in the past, there've been some surprises because the, the final result didn't match the, that last poll. And I've heard people say that that's because Israelis really don't decide who they're going to vote for. Many Israelis don't decide who they're going to vote for until the last 48 hours before uh, before they vote. I actually think that for a lot of people, they may not, given the, 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 the way things have gone, I wonder if people are actually deciding in the last 48 seconds when they're in the, the, uh, the, the, the right. voting booth. Um, but we're, you know, there's a lot of uh, a lot of time and a lot of polls ahead uh you know, to see how this is going to shake out. I always wonder who actually talks to pollsters anyway, because uh, anytime I've ever picked up the phone and there's been a pollster, I've, uh, I've told them I wasn't interested. I don't know who are the people who are actually interested in taking the time to talk to pollsters, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, now, look, the other scenario you're saying is that, uh, is that presumo- Netanyahu presumably can put together a, a government what do you think that government might look like? What, do you, what what would you guess as somebody who sat next to the prime minister for years? What do you guess he's trying to do right now? What does he have in his head as his ideal scenario? You know, I think what made the current government so unusual for Israel was 
you know, I, I don't know if I, I don't know if there are any other exceptions to this, but historically, Israel has never had a majority government. It's always been uh, a coalition, and for for a whole bunch of reasons, including the you know, the, the the proportional uh, voting system, the threshold percentage it takes to get into the Knesset, and just divisions within the population. His, so you've always had to have a coalition. Historically, those coalitions have always been continuous on the ideological spectrum. So you might have one that goes from, from the right into the center or from the left into the center, um, but it's always been continuous between the parties that are members of the government. The government that is being dissolved now uh, broke that rule. Right. It, it was it was it was choppy. So you had pieces of the right, pieces of the center, pieces of the left. Uh, you had this this Arab uh, Islamist party and, and there wasn't that kind of ideological uh, continuity. And so, you know, I think if if Netanyahu is trying to put together an alternative coalition, my guess is that he would try and go back to sort of the, the Israeli political basics and find something that was more ideologically coherent, probably by pulling or trying to, to, to pull members from the more right-leaning or center-right-leaning parties that were in the Bennett government into uh, a more right and center-right uh, alternative government. One question I have on my mind, I'm sure you have it on yours too, is what impact this is going to have on uh, on foreign policy. Let's just assume that we've got um, Lapid government for the next six months. Uh, you know, a a weak Lapid government interim prime minister. What impact do you think that's going to have on, say, the Iran policy of the of the Israelis? I think it's probably going to have little impact on the Iran policy for the following reasons. Uh, first, Lapid, uh, I believe Lapid was, was deeply involved in the formation of policy in the Bennett government. That is, Lapid was, you know, they, they created this title of alternate prime minister. Um, and so I think that Lapid and Bennett actually coordinated their positions pretty closely. The second reason is that Israeli governments and Israeli political figures are nearly unanimous in uh, in their understanding of uh, Iran and the nuclear deal and the nuclear program and the threat it poses. And so I wouldn't expect there to be uh, a great change uh, in that regard. The third thing is, and I don't know how much of this is true or not, um, you know, time will tell, but apparently when Bennett leaves the prime minister's office, he's supposed to retain the Iran file in the Lapid government. So all of these things suggest that there'll be at least some measure of continuity in, in, the, in the policy. Um, let me tell you, I, I'm, I've actually been surprised by the Iran policy of this government. And uh, let, let me give you my the picture that I see, and then you can tell me if you agree with that picture and if it surprises you. I, I see much more continuity in the Iran policy of uh, this government and of uh, the Netanyahu government than I thought there was going to be. For, and and, and this, this is why it surprises me. 
because the there's a kind of uh, coalition, international coalition against Netanyahu, against Netanyahu and Trump, uh, between the Biden administration and the and the Bennett Lapid government. They both have an interest in uh, keeping down Netanyahu and keeping uh, um, keeping down Trump, um, and so there's been kind of a rhetorical agreement between the Biden team and the and, and the Bennett Lapid team that they will depict the previous tensions between Obama and Netanyahu uh, as a terrible episode in U.S.-Israeli relations, and they will depict the cooperation between Netanyahu and Trump as an equally terrible period in uh, in in U.S. Um, Israeli relations. The first one, I mean, the Obama uh, Netanyahu period, is bad because Netanyahu was so abrasive uh, to Obama. And the second one, Trump uh, Obama, I mean Trump uh, Netanyahu, is is really bad because they left the nuclear deal. The Americans left the nuclear deal with the uh, under the advisement and support of uh, of Netanyahu, and that supposedly caused all of our problems with. Uh, uh, with Iran. So the two sides have agreed on this narrative, and uh, the Americans are pursuing the nuclear deal with Iran uh, over the objections of the Israeli government. The Israeli government is not making the, this has been in Lapid, they don't make their objections very loudly uh, because that undermines the agreed narrative about what a problem Netanyahu was and what a problem Trump was. But so I, uh, seeing all of this, I expected that there would be strong pressure from Washington for the Israelis to uh, curtail their clandestine operations against the Iranians during this period when Biden was ne- was negotiating uh, with the when the Biden administration was negotiating with the Iranians. They didn't want the Israelis to scuttle the, the negotiations. And it seems to me what happened was that the Israeli government made some concessions, this is Bennett and Lapid, to Biden in the sense that they laid off somewhat on clandestine, to the extent that we can tell, clandestine sabotage of the nuclear program, but they kept up the pressure on the IRGC, on the Revolutionary uh, Guards, and they, they, they kept the tempo of operations in Syria uh, up, but they also carried out a lot of uh, what I would say are, you know, extremely aggressive operations inside Iran itself. And that's where the surprise comes in on my part. I thought that the pressure from Washington uh, on this government to treat Iran with kid gloves during the U.S.-Iranian negotiations was going to be so strong that Bennett uh, was going to have to uh, buckle. And I don't really think that happened. So that's my picture. I went on quite at some length there. Is that, do you have the same picture in your head or do you see it differently? Well, I think you're, you're talking about two different things. Um, one is the political narrative. And I think, uh, I think that's right. I think that, you know, uh, Bennett and Lapid have a great political interest in uh, differentiating themselves, uh, you know, domestically, politically from Netanyahu. And I, I think it's it's no uh, it's no secret that the uh, the administration in Washington uh, prefers a Bennett Lapid government to a Netanyahu government. But I think the policy, as we said a few minutes ago, I think the the policy of of Israel from Netanyahu to Bennett Lapid um, has been very consistent. And there's I mean there's there've been efforts to sort of 
paint the policy as different, um, in, including about the, the, the vocal nature of Netanyahu's opposition to the nuclear deal. But I think the policy is effectively the same, but there's also an important difference just because of where we are in history. So if, mm. if you go back to 2013, 14, 15, right? You know, you could say peaking with the prime minister's uh, speech in Congress in March of 2015. The goal that- And you were, you, were, you were advising him at that time, is that right? I was advising him at the time, yes. The effort then was to influence the content of the deal itself, which was still coming together. That is, mm. the prime minister's speech was in March. The deal wasn't concluded until July. And so what, what Israel was trying to do, what, what Prime Minister Netanyahu was trying to do, was influence the content of the deal before it was finalized. Today, if you, you, know, you fast forward to 2021 and 2022, the deal is the deal. There's, there, there are no terms of the deal to influence. And uh, it, it seems like, you know, so, so there's no, you know, what's the upside of having that kind of a, a, a loud argument about something that you cannot change and you aren't going to influence? And, you know, because I think, I think that a, a, a fight between Israel and a U.S. administration is not something to take lightly. I don't think Prime Minister Netanyahu took it lightly. And I hear people, there's sort of a, an interesting historical revisionism that goes on where people, they, people act as if the prime minister started out with this, this loud public fight and say, well, why did he go to Congress? Why didn't he make these arguments privately and quietly? Well, but of course he did do those things. And the, you know, the speech in Congress was the end of that process, not the beginning of that process. It was after all of those other attempts uh, had failed, had fallen on on deaf ears, right? I mean, it was it was worse than that because the administration actually, you know, hid the negotiations initially, and then uh, and then misled Israel about about the the, the policy. Um, so I think it's it's different in that sense, which makes it easier for a, the Bennett Lapid government to say, "Hey, we're taking a different tack. We're not having that kind of public argument." But it's also you, you don't need to have that kind of you know the, the value of that kind of public argument is 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 much lower than it was seven years ago. Now the other thing is th there seems to be a um, I, I don't know you know what's being said behind closed doors, but the administration has said publicly they said it while you know during the campaign they said it um, during confirmation hearings they said it after uh, entering office. Their policy is to go back into the JCPOA, and Israel's policy is to say that that's a that's a big mistake, and that you know that shouldn't be done. And um, there were a, at least a couple of times where, in briefings at the White House, they were asked. They said, "You know, is, is are the conversations with the Israelis are they influencing what you're doing?" And they said, "No, right? You know, we're talking with them, we're coordinating with them, but they're not influencing anything that's being done." And so the U.S. is doing what the U.S. is doing. And, um, you know, I, I can't say what Israel is or isn't doing clandestinely, but you have seen a, I think, a pretty uh, uh, steady stream of, of, of mishaps uh, in Iran that I think I agree with you. They, they go beyond the nuclear program, but they don't ignore the nuclear program either. And so in that sense, it feels like they're, they're, maybe they're just talking 
past each other and each is doing what they feel they, they, they want to do or need to do. Does it surprise you? It surprises me. Uh, I, I, I didn't think, because this government has been so weak, I mean, in terms of, uh, I guess, fragile is a better way to, to, to say it. Because the, 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 it only had a one-seat majority, uh, this coalition, you know, it could so easily be, um, it could so easily fall, and of course now it is falling. I have to say it lasted longer than I expected it would. Because of that uh, precarious majority, I thought that they would be more sensitive uh, to the Americans than they turned out to have been. And, and so I've, I've been surprised. Yeah, I mean, you'll, you'll notice that it's, it's falling about things that have uh, almost nothing to do with, you know, with foreign policy or with the United States. It's, these are things that are yeah. um, largely unrelated. Yeah, the internal contradictions between the, the members. But does, it, but does it surprise you that they, that they kept up the, uh, the pressure on Iran? No, uh, it doesn't surprise me because, again, you know, going back to the speech, but for listeners who, who have never heard the speech or never read the speech, I urge them to do so. You can find it online. It's very easy. This is You're talking about uh, Netanyahu's speech, to, Netanyahu's uh, speech to, both houses to, of to both houses of Congress in March of 2015. And if you, you go back and listen to that speech, he said that if the deal proceeds as it is, and, and of course it did, you know, a few things would happen. Iran would become more aggressive. It would have... Uh, a vast nuclear infrastructure that it didn't need for civilian purposes that would leave it positioned to enrich basically at an unlimited scale. Uh, and it would trigger a regional nuclear arms race. And uh, you, can, you can agree or disagree with the prime minister's decision to make that speech, but all three of those things have come to pass. So, yeah. so you know, all of the things that Israel was warning the world about seven years ago uh, have come true. And so that Israel is uh, sees these things as a threat and would act to counter that threat does not surprise me. Boy, I, I'll, I'll tell you, I thought that speech was incredibly masterful. So I, I had been making the case around town, I, you know, I and many others, but I had been among those making the case around, uh, around town that Obama was aligning with Iran uh, and that this was um, a uh, very, very misguided, if not disastrous, policy. And the negotiations on the, on the nuclear deal were having the effect of strengthening Iran in the region, especially that was one of my, one of the subjects that I discussed most. And I can just tell you that there was Washington, D.C., before the Netanyahu speech and Washington, D.C. after, and they were entirely different. All of a sudden, after his speech, when I would make these points, the exact same points I had been making before he spoke, suddenly they were getting traction. He really, he really changed minds, focused people's attention, uh, and I, I, I think it's, it, could, it could actually be the subject of a master class in, in political uh, persuasion. Another interesting thing about it is that a lot of people, I mean, as you mentioned, a lot of people thought it was a mistake to make the speech, uh, particularly Jewish Americans. I'm, I'm not Jewish, so I had no, it bothered a lot, a lot of Jewish Americans, including conservatives who liked Netanyahu. Friends of mine were made very uneasy by the speech. It kind of went against 2,000 years of Jewish history where it's been, you know, ingrained 
uh, in Jewish communities not to stick their thumb in, in the in you know in 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 the eye of the in the eye of kings. This is just not wise. You know, keep your head down. Uh, that that sort of thing. And so it made people very, very un, uh, uh, uneasy. I, uh, not so much among non-Jews who liked Netanyahu. It didn't bother them at all. And I, I thought that was an interesting aspect of it. Another interesting aspect of it was if there's something that doesn't translate from one country to another, it's politicians. You know, rock, rock musicians, Hollywood stars, actors, and so on, they can translate across cultural boundaries. But politicians rarely do. Sometimes they do. I mean, there are global leaders and so on. But, uh, but for the most part, politics is a very parochial thing. And uh, uh, Netanyahu had a special. He, he still has. He has. He, he has a special status in uh, uh, in the United States, unlike any other any other foreign leader I can think of. You know, along the line, it's got it's something along the lines of a of a Winston Churchill. Uh, I can't, you know, you have to go to that level of historical, historic figure to think of someone who, who was so, had so much sway, a foreigner who had so much sway over, uh, uh, over American thinking. So as somebody who worked next to him, how do you, how do you account for that? And somebody who knows America and Israel well, how do you, how do you account for this remarkable legitimacy and influence that he has? Well, first of all, I think it's it's interesting that you mentioned Churchill because I believe that the two of them, Netanyahu and Churchill, uh, share the record for speeches to a joint session of Congress. I think they each have done it three times. Wow. I did not know that. You know, it, it's interesting because for all the talk about whether or not the prime minister should have made that speech or not, and the discomfort that it caused some people for this reason or that, in in many ways, and I, I think this was this was pretty clear to the prime minister. It was it was a no brainer. It was so obvious that it needed to be done because here you have a danger, just you know looming just over the horizon. Um, uh, a very grave danger. And you have the opportunity to make your case and to sound the alarm on arguably the most important stage in the world. And it was clear to him that it was, it, it was his obligation to sound that alarm. And if you think about it, in many ways, it's, it's what it's what Zionism and the creation of the state of Israel were for, right? So it was it was the state of Israel and the role of the prime minister of Israel fulfilling their mission in the most dramatic way. And not doing so would have been a tremendous failure. Netanyahu, I think, benefited from being... Uh, largely familiar to uh, American audiences. You know, he had been the ambassador at the United Nations. He had been the deputy ambassador in Washington. He spent part of his childhood uh, in the United States. He, you know, he speaks English, you know, at a native level. And um, I think all of those things helped make his his message 
uh, resonate. And, um, you know, it, did it rub some people the wrong way? It, it absolutely did. Um, but it wasn't a feel good speech. It was a, it was a, um, it was a fire alarm speech. No, it's a, it's, it's, it, that's a tough thing to do to go into the, uh, to go to the capital of your, um, of your greatest ally, which is so much more powerful than you, uh, and say that the direction the president is going is the wrong direction. That's a really hard line to walk um, Can, without 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 uh, without really uh, you know inflaming a lot of pa- uh, a, a lot of uh, a lot of people. You know what? That's true, and it's interesting though because <clears throat> um, just in recent years, um, Macron did that. Uh, when Trump was president, he came and spoke to a joint session going completely against the policies of the president. Uh, mm-hmm. Zelensky did it going against the policies of the current president, and it didn't cause the kind of hand-wringing uh, and upset that the Netanyahu speech did, which is, I, I think, uh, curious in and of itself. Yeah, that's interesting. That's, that's very interesting. Jonathan, let me ask you uh, about something else that happened under uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, and uh, I'm talking about the Abraham Accords. I've seen recently people giving uh, the Prime Minister a lot of credit for uh, coaching Trump in terms of seeing the path forward with the Gulf, with the Gulf states, a strategy that's sometimes called outside in, meaning instead of trying to make peace with the Palestinians, going outside of the um, the usual actors to the Gulf and then working back toward uh, Israel. Do you agree with that? Is, was this an idea that was originally hatched in Israel, or should we be giving Donald Trump all the credit for that? Uh, I, I don't. You know, I think you know with something this complicated, I don't. I don't think it's it's correct to talk about giving all the credit to anybody. Um, and, and of course, success has many fathers. Um, but the idea behind the Abraham Accords was something that we'd been discussing uh, for several years, even before the Trump administration. And we had... You've been telling, you've been telling John Kerry that uh, this is what he should be doing? Well, it's funny because you, you, you know, after the Abraham Accords were announced, people went back to this video of, of then Secretary Kerry at uh, the Saban Forum where he says, you know, there are voices in Israel uh, that are talking about a peace uh, with the Arab states. And, you know, and he said that, you know, there'll be no peace with the Arab states uh, that's separate from the Palestinians. He goes, no, 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 and and, you right. know, and people made you know a lot of jokes about that and said you know they you know for every no he said there was another state that had made an agreement with Israel and and what I think a lot of people missed about that is Kerry wasn't making a predictive statement. He was making a normative statement. He wasn't saying that the Arab states wouldn't. He was saying that the Arab states shouldn't. And it was an ideological position that said basically the Arab states shouldn't make peace with Israel until there's peace with the Palestinians. And the problem with that, of course, is that it it gives the Palestinians a peace veto, which they've used consistently um, since, since the beginning. 
there were, I think, two things that made, you know, that, that, that helped bring the idea into, uh, into sharper focus uh, for us. One was, um, if you're looking sort of on the, the negative side, the threat side, was, was the nuclear deal. The Israel and its neighbors saw a common threat uh, coming from Iran. They saw Iran getting stronger, getting richer, getting basically international blessing for uh, its nuclear program. And, you know, you can, people try and, you know, they can spin it any way they want. But Iran's uh, uranium enrichment program uh, always was and always will be part of a nuclear weapons program. Um, you really have to pretend that it's not in order to, for the, you know, the deal to make any sense. You're and, saying you're, you're not a, you're not a strong believer in the fatwa. <laughs> the fatwa that nobody's ever seen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so uh, uh, you have this, this common threat. And I, I tell people the only silver lining to, uh, to the JCPOA was that it, it helped bring Israel and its neighbors together. But there's another side to it too, which is a more positive side. And that is, in, in countless meetings uh, where I was with the prime minister, uh, both in Jerusalem and in capitals around the world, leaders would tell him, Israel has solutions to problems that my country is facing, right? It could be healthcare or water management or agriculture or cybersecurity. And uh, and I want to work with Israel in order to make the lives of my people better. And I am no longer willing to subordinate the interests of my country uh, to the whims of the Palestinians. And the ones who said that the loudest and in the least diplomatic language, I would say, uh, were our Arab neighbors. And wow. so... It, so you're, we're talking now, we're talking back now, uh, 2013, 2014, is what you're talking about? We're talking about, yeah, over, you know, over most of, of, of the decade before uh, the Abraham Accords were announced in 2020. And so you know, Israel saw this opportunity such that even in the weeks before the Abraham Accords were announced, you know, the, the, the way that Israelis were still talking about it was you know, Israel's relations with its neighbors were broader and deeper than they'd ever been. Uh, but, um, right. but they wouldn't mention any names. Um, because it was still, it was still quiet. It was still under the table. And I think, uh, you know, I, I've, 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 the way I've heard ambassador Dermer talk about it is, you know, we presented these things to, uh, the Trump administration from early on. And it, it took uh, a couple of years uh, of working together, getting to know each other, getting to know the lay of the land before, you know, these things sort of fell into place. And then uh, the, the way uh, Dermer puts it is in, then a year was lost to Israeli politics. And so right. you end up going from, from 2017, where, where we started presenting these arguments to 2020 before it's actually concluded and made public. Wow, Jonathan, that's uh, that's that's really fascinating. There's, uh, this really tells me, you know, somebody who spent a lot of time uh, in graduate school reading diplomatic archives. There's going to be a retelling of all the Abraham Accords 
you know, when the when the when the archives open up, we're going to see this all quite differently, I think. And and we're 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 seeing an historic spoiler alert. You will see it differently. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're going to see a, we're going to see an historic shift underway. That the Americans were very very slow to, and the, uh, Americans on on both sides of the aisle really were really slow to see the advantages of. Now, when President Biden goes next month to Saudi Arabia and Israel. You expect that any of this is going to be on his mind? Any of what? <laughs> and is he going to? Is he? There are people who are suggesting, saying out loud that he is going to try to expand the Abraham Accords in terms of bringing the Saudi, uh, bringing Saudi Arabia and Israel together. I'm skeptical. I'm very skeptical, uh, but I don't have any information. I wonder. Do you? Do you think that? Uh, that that Biden is going to be looking to actually foster greater cooperation between Saudi Arabia and Israel when he comes? You know, I don't have any information either, but it's it's interesting to see and I think you have to give credit where credit is due. There there has there does seem to have been an evolution um, even over just the last year and a half. When when the Biden administration came into office, uh, they wouldn't even say the words Abraham Accords, right? They sort of they 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 had all these these rhetorical yeah. Uh, tricks normalization to, to, agreements to talk their way around it and now you know now they talk about it and they've they've already teased it in advance of the visit that you know there's sort of something that sort of hints toward the Abraham Accords and and there's this this meeting that's going to take place in in Saudi Arabia and you know the, the the motivation behind it I think is is unclear you know sort of how much They've come to believe in this as a, a useful model, or whether it's part of sort of a, a broader uh, effort to uh, reconcile with the Saudis right now. But you know, but in some ways that doesn't matter. Uh, if there's, uh, I don't know, you know, if or what something will be uh, announced on the trip. But you know, if 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 the uh, if the administration is is willing to. You know, add to the momentum of the Abraham Accords and expand the the circle of of states that uh, have peaceful relations with Israel, even if it's incremental. I think that's uh, that's for the good. I think it would be for the good. I don't expect it. I'm uh, I'm skeptical that this is what's happening. I I I have a more cynical. I think it's a more cynical view, or I will put forth a more cynical interpretation because I I think that the no, 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 no of John Kerry was the attitude of the Biden administration when it came in. Uh, obviously, they couldn't say no, 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 because they were confronted with the fact that 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 Kerry's entire worldview, his, as you put, the ideological position, which said that this shouldn't happen, was defied, and it worked very much to Trump's advantage. And it was the right thing to do. Uh, it was popular. Uh, and so they were saddled with this thing, and they they didn't want to be saddled with it. But more than that, the the Abraham Accords under the Trump administration were part of a shared conception between uh, Israel and um, and the United States, and between Israel and uh, and the Gulf, and well as well that the that the big threat on the horizon was the Iranian threat. And these normalization agreements, while they were not part of uh, any kind of um, security cooperation, formal security cooperation, they were going to lay the groundwork for a potential alliance or alignment of Israel with the Gulf states, and in particular, Saudi Arabia. I mean, the big, 
you can't look to the UAE to be a, a bulwark of, uh, of defense against Iran because they're so vulnerable to an Iranian attack. They're always going to hedge. But Saudi Arabia and Israel could actually have a kind of defense pact against Iran if the, uh, if the United States was part of it. And so there was a common, there, in Washington, Riyadh, and Jerusalem, there was developing a common conception of the security challenge. The Biden administration came in with a very different idea about how to, how to achieve peace and security in the Middle East. They wanted to cut a deal with Iran. The idea of organizing a coalition of states with an alliance of Israel and, uh, and the Gulf states uh, as part of this containment strategy was alien to their thinking. And I think it remains alien to their thinking. I do not think the Biden administration has given up on the idea of cutting a deal with Iran. I do not think that they can, they're going to successfully reset relations with Saudi Arabia because that has to be, you, can, you cannot successfully reset the relations until the United States goes back to a policy of seriously containing Iran. And when I say contain Iran, I'm not talking about the nuclear weapon, preventing Iran from getting a nuclear weapon and containing Iranian forces on the ground. Until the United States dedicates itself to that, it can't reset with Saudi Arabia. So I, I, I think that there's going to be a lot of window dressing and a lot of hinting and head faking by the by the administration that, oh, yeah, we're, they, they know that the Abraham Accords is popular and, and, and useful and successful, and they look silly by being against it. So, they're, so what they're trying to do is, is grab some of, the, some of the luster of the Abraham Accords for themselves without actually really investing any effort in it. I don't, I don't want to uh, make this sound better than it is, right? At the end of the day, the, you know, the Abraham Accords sort of goes against three things, I think, that the administration feels very strongly about. One is the, um, you know, the importance or even the centrality of the Palestinian issue. Uh, the second is the centrality of cutting a deal with Iran. And the third is rejecting, you know, whole cloth, anything that was done by the Trump administration. And right. so I think for all of those reasons, the, the Abraham Accords are, are, uh, uh, a tough pill for them to swallow. And I, you know, I completely agree with you that, um, you know, until something substantive is done vis-a-vis -vis Iran in general and its nuclear program in particular, I think it's going to be very hard for the administration to gain traction in the region. I also think, I think it's, you know, it's important to point out that the should versus would ideology about the Palestinians is wrong. It's that, it, you know, by going, by sticking to inside out instead of outside in, it's, it's perpetuating not just the Palestinian peace veto, but it's perpetuating the conflict. Right. And the idea behind the Abraham Accords wasn't to avoid the Palestinian issue. It was actually to try and make it so that, you know, perhaps someday, not immediately, but perhaps someday, it could create the conditions where the Palestinians could actually make the hard decisions that they've they've resisted all these years to actually make peace. And I think that that you know rejecting that is is a giant step would be a giant step backwards. All right. Well, um, Jonathan, I think uh, we've gone for the better part of an hour here. So uh, uh, 
it's, let me just say it's been a real pleasure talking to you. It's been an even bigger pleasure having you part of the Center for Peace and Security in the Middle East, the Hudson Institute. And uh, I look forward to uh, many years of cooperation with you. Thanks, Mike. It's uh, great to be with you uh, on the podcast and uh, great to be with you at the Center, uh, which is, uh, uh, I think, a lot of uh, great work uh, ahead of us. That's all we have here. Huge thank you to everyone for tuning in. Huge thank you to Mike and a huge thank you to Hudson Institute for supporting our work. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you.